0: Of our Lord Jesus Christ. The text begins with the words, it says in the NIV, though you already know all this, I want to remind you. It's like a father or a mother talking to their son or daughter I know I've told you this many times before, but I want you to remember. And then comes the instruction, the warning which is usually a reminder to keep away from some kind of harm. It's wonderful when parents do that, isn't it? Because they do it out of love. And they know that we need reminders. We all do, young and old. So do I. We need to remember our own mistakes of the past and the mistakes of others. We have to learn from them. If we don't learn from our own mistakes and the mistakes of others then it will not go well with us. The same thing is true of those people to whom Jude is writing. And so he goes on to remind them about what happened to disobedient Israel hundreds of years ago. And he also wants to remind them of what happened to the fallen angels and what happened to the Inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who committed their horrible sins and the judgment that they experienced because of it. They needed to remember and so do we. We need to be mindful of God's love and care. And that's what this text of this morning is all about. The theme of the message is as follow. The Lord reminds us of his judgment in the past To prepare us for the final day of judgment. That's the theme. And then we will see that he uses the example of. In the first place disobedient Israel. In the second place the fallen angels. And finally of Sodom and Gomorrah. So then first he uses the example of disobedient Israel. As we saw the last time when I preached on this letter. Jude in his introductory words first reminded the believer of how rich he and she is in Christ. He writes about their common salvation and about the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Through Christ's mercy, peace and love have been multiplied to us. Those are tremendous riches. We have been delivered from the grip of Satan and death and granted the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But already in those first verses of this letter, he warns the readers about the false teachers who slipped into their midst, about those men who want to rob them of their faith. In verse 16, he describes them later as grumblers, malcontents, following their sinful desires, they are loudmouth bolsters showing favoritism to gain advantage. And now he says to them in verse 5 Now I want to remind you. Reminder is an essential part of teaching. Any teacher will tell you that. Since we are fallible human beings, we need to be reminded of things. For we frequently forget, often deliberately. Sometimes without realizing it. So first he gives the example of redeemed Israel. He He takes an example from the beginning of her existence as a nation. The Lord had delivered his people Israel from Egypt in a most wonderful and miraculous way. They were slaves in the land of Egypt where they were treated very harshly. But that wasn't the worst thing. They were in danger of taking over the idol worship of the Egyptians. They were at risk of becoming like the rest of the world and fall completely into the grip of Satan. And God did not want that. He loved his people too much. He wanted to preserve a people to serve him. And so what did he do? He delivered them out of Egypt. He took them out of there. And he showed them how powerful he is. He sent the one plague after the other. It was miraculous. It was awesome to see him at work. And finally, the Egyptians had no choice but to let God's people go. For what did he do? The Lord God led them through the Red Sea. Another miracle. Another display of his almighty power. He drowned Pharaoh and his whole army. What an almighty God how deeply he cares for his covenant people. And that's not all. He continues to be with them in the desert. He goes ahead of them in a cloud. He leads the way. And he gives them good food to eat and refreshing water to drink. They lack nothing, even the sandals and their clothes do not wear out. That is how the almighty creator looked after his people. But then what happens? The Israelites complain and grumble. Nevertheless. They are not satisfied with the food. They want more variety. It's not enough. They want to eat meat. Some of them even want to go back to Egypt. To that heathen country. And then God becomes angry. He smites his people. With a very great plague. Yet. He continues to provide for the rest and to protect them and to plan a wonderful future for them. And so then he tells Moses to send out spies into the land of Canaan, into the promised land. And there these spies find a land flowing with milk and honey. In other words, a very prosperous country. A great variety of foods are grown there. And God promises to give that land to them. And to defeat the enemies that live there. But what happens when the spies come back? Well, the people are afraid. They heard about the strong fortifications. They heard that the walls of some of the cities were, in some places, 15 feet thick and 50 feet high. They were scared. Again, they complained that they wanted to go back to Egypt. At least there they knew what they were at. They forgot about all the miracles that God had only recently performed. And now they doubted that he could do it again. They listened to the ten spies who saw nothing but difficulties ahead. But they did not listen to the other two spies, to Joshua and Caleb, who reminded them of God's faithfulness and his promise to grant them all that they would need for their well-being and that he would defeat their enemies as he did in the past. Instead of believing them, they were about to stone them. And they would have done so if God had not directly intervened. And at that point, the glory of the Lord appears at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel And he says to Moses, as we know from Romans 14, verse 11 and 12, How long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a greater nation, a greater nation and mightier than they. And then Moses pleased with God. And the Lord relents. And decrees that only those who are over the age of 20 would be spared. The rest of them would die in the wilderness. In our text it says that Jesus delivered them out of Egypt. And that he is the one who destroyed them. Other translations say that it is the Lord who delivered them and destroyed the unbelievers. But as is clear from the old manuscript. The Lord Jesus is mentioned here himself. In the final analysis, he is the one who delivered them out of the hands of their enemies. And he is the one who executed his judgment upon them. And Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 10 verse 4 where he writes, as we just read together, that all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. And in verse 9 it says that they should not test the Lord as some of them did. Although at that time the Lord Jesus was still a long time coming. When it comes right down to it it is actually the Lord Jesus Christ whom they tested and whom they rejected. They wanted to do, they wanted nothing to have to do with their Savior except on their own terms. Throughout the remainder of their years in the wilderness... For 38 years. Israel had a constant reminder. Of God's judgment. Against unbelief. For as I said. Only those who were over the age of 20. Would enter the land of Canaan. That amounts to a lot of people dying. Did you ever think about that? According to Numbers 1. Verse 45 and 46. All the men who were 20 years old or more numbered 603,550. One commentator did some figuring and came up with some amazing figures. He points out that if we add an equal number of women, then those who died on the way to Canaan numbered more than 1.2 million people. And if we divide that total by the number of the number of days... Of the 30 year journey to Canaan after God pronounced the death penalty on these people, and then we arrive at a staggering total of nearly 90 deaths per day. What a stern warning not to think lightly of God's judgment. But the young people were constantly reminded of what happens when they do not believe the promises of the Lord and when they do not put their trust in him it's also noteworthy that that younger generation took this to heart we can read about that in the second chapter of the book of judges where it says in chapter 2 verse 7 and the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. (coughs) But then in verse 10, we read what happens to the next generation. It says, And there arose another generation after them, who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. Judges 2, verse 10. And we know what happened to that generation, don't we? We see what happens here at the time of judges. It seems that each generation has to be reminded time and again of the judgment of God. That if they do not heed the word of the Lord God. Then they too will perish. They will not enter the rest of God. Why not? What exactly did they do wrong? It's important to think about that. But this is also for us. That's why God... Gave us his word. For one thing, they walked by sight, not by faith. They saw the tremendous struggle ahead of them in conquering the land of Canaan. They knew that, humanly speaking, they would not be able to do it. It would be easier for the moment to trust their own instincts rather than to trust God. And so they focused on their current outward circumstances. Rather than putting their trust in God. They put God on the back burner. They thought that they had to do everything in their own strength. And according to their own way of thinking. But do you know what happens when you do that? When you want to be your own savior? Well, then you put your own future and the future of your loved ones in your own hands. And then you will become disobedient. And you will become distraught. You won't follow God's ways. Then you will also become anxious. For the truth of the matter is. That you and I. We can't control our own future. And you cannot control the future of your own children either. We cannot control our own circumstances. Everything is in God's powerful and loving hands. You don't know. What's going to happen to you tomorrow or even today? And what's more, once you start concentrating on yourself, then you will also become more and more dissatisfied with life. For when you put your trust in man and yourself or in others, then you're inevitably going to be disappointed. And that's what the Israelites did when they were wandering in the wilderness. Because of their disobedience, all those over the age of 20 failed to enter the promised land. Brothers and sisters, let that be a warning for you and for me as well. We readily put our trust in man, don't we? In the doctor to make us better. In the banker to get us out of a financial crisis. And the psychologist or the counselor to fix our marriage. But too often we do not go to God first and trust in him. And allow him to direct us from the scripture to see what he wants us to do. How he wants us to trust in him. How he wants us to be obedient to him. We want to figure things out for ourselves first. And we look out to the world to deliver us from whatever troubles face us. While God's help is near. When you consistently do that. Then you walk away from God time and again. And you will not experience his peace. You will not experience his rest. Isn't it true we so easily. Forget about God, don't we? I'm not any different. Even though I'm busy with God's word much of the time, too often I do too. We forget. But then we have to remember, we have to remember, what has God done? Who is He? Think about it. He has delivered you and me from sin and Satan. What a miraculous thing what he has done. Where would you and I be without him. The almighty creator of heaven and earth. He has given you and me the gift of life. And he has given us the promise of eternal life. And he promises that not only to us. But also to our children. And to our grandchildren because of the covenant that he makes with the believers. Is there anything more wonderful than that, brothers and sisters? There isn't, is there? But you have to keep on believing that. And you have to live out of that faith every day. If you don't, then you and I are going to fall away as well. It's not that God fails. No, he never fails. He's always trustworthy. He's always faithful. And so God wants us to trust in him. It doesn't mean that there's certain things that we can't figure out for ourselves. Of course, we have to. God has given us brains to think things through. But not in order to put our trust in ourselves. He does not want us to live as if we don't need him. And as if we don't need his people either. As if we can just walk away from it all without any consequences. The consequences, brothers and sisters, are walking away from God and His people is death. And that is the warning here in Jude eternal death, even. And that's why He gives us so many warnings in the preaching, in the administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper to remember. In the text, Jude gives us another thing to remember. He gives us the example of fallen angels who also thought that they could do without God. We come to the second point. Jude reminds us what happened to the fallen angels when they sinned against God but abandoned their own home. The Lord gave the angels a position of authority just like he did to mankind. Just like he did to you and to me. Well sure the position of the angels is different from ours in a lot of ways. The Lord did not make a covenant with them as he did with us for example. He deals with the angels as individuals. Angels do not procreate. They stand alone. They have no offspring. And therefore they do not have anyone to represent them either. The representative of the human race is the first Adam in paradise and the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not only spiritually related, but we are also genetically related. For that reason, original sin is passed on to us through the first Adam and salvation through the second Adam. When the angels fell, it was impossible for them to be restored. And now we read about the time when some angels rebelled against God. That's the one thing they have in common with us. We do, not need about, we do not read about this in any detail elsewhere in scripture. Only Jude and Peter give us some information as to what happened there in paradise. And so how do Jude and Peter know all this? Well, we don't know. In one way or the other, God revealed that to them. And it may have been something that was passed on to them orally. Some people think that they received their information from one of the apocryphal books. The book 1 Enoch. Which also says something about the fall of some angels. What does it say there? It says there that those angels that fell committed adultery with the women on earth. And in this way they corrupted the human race and received condemnation. They were put in prison and bound forever. After that, God destroyed the human race in the flood during the days of Noah. So that's what it says in 1 Enoch. And some commentators believe that Judah is using that reference. They point to Genesis 6, verse 2, as proof and claim that the sons of God mentioned there, who married the daughters of men, were fallen angels. Let me read to you what it says in. Genesis 6 verse 1 and 2 says there when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive and they took as their wives any they chose. Now it is true that at times angels are called sons of God in the Bible. For example in Job 2 verse 1. But the term sons of God is never used of fallen angels. The reference in Genesis 6 cannot refer to angels, for angels are spiritual beings. The Lord Jesus himself taught that in answer to the Sadducees about marriage at the resurrection. The Lord Jesus explains in Matthew 22, verse 30, that at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. And so the reverence in Genesis 6 is not to angels, but to the young men of the church who sought out the girls of the world. That was one of the sins of the people of the church which caused the judgment of God through The flood. As soon as the boundaries between the world, the seed of the serpent and the church, the seed of the woman, are not properly kept, then God's people can expect to experience the wrath of God. And Jude gives us his own inspired account and reminds us that after creation, some angels became haughty and arrogant. They were not satisfied to be servants of God. And of men. They left a high position of authority, it says. They wanted more than they already had, in other words. And so the result was that instead they completely lost all the riches that he had in heaven. Because of their rebellion, they squandered everything they had and subsequently were assigned to hell. Jude reminds us of what happened to the angels. And because man is in a similar situation. For you and I have also been given a high position. Think of Psalm 8. We received that high position through Christ. Who restored us to a relationship of favor with God. Through his once for all sacrifice on the cross. Jude warns the believer not to fall into that same sin of the angels. He warns them not to squander their heritage by living in sin. He warns them not to deny their faith. And to live like unbelievers as the false teachers in their midst urged them to do. And that warning, brothers and sisters, goes out to us this morning as well. Me too. If we are not satisfied with what God has given us. And me too will be punished. Just like the angels were. Let me ask you. Are you satisfied? Are you content with what God has given you? Or do you want more? Do you want something that you may not have? Young people, are you looking for a marriage partner in the world? And you who are married, do you want someone else's wife or someone else's husband, for example? Are you engaged in pornography? Do you desire someone else's business or job or house? Are you a grumbler or a complainer? If we were to ask your wife, or your, or your husband, or your children, what would they say about you? That you're a happy person? Or that you're a grumbler, a complainer? Well, be warned. The same thing happened to the disobedient Israel and the disobedient angels. What happened to them can happen to us as well. He wants you and me to be satisfied. God wants you and me to be satisfied with what he has given us. Not to reach for the forbidden fruit. Else we end up in the camp of the devil and his fallen angels. Jude says that the Lord God has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. That's a terrible judgment. Their punishment is great, they will never escape, they are doomed forever. But you may say, is it not true that the fallen angels, Satan and his myriads of demons, still have the run of the world right now? Look around you. And do the scriptures not even call Satan the prince of the world? How can Jude say that they're being kept by God in darkness with everlasting chains? Well, the darkness that Jude refers to here is hell. But Jude is speaking here about the final destination of Satan, and the rest of the fallen angels, and all those who belong to them. Even though currently the devil may be out of his cage for a little while, he has nevertheless been defeated. And now he is severely restricted in what he can do. The chains that hold him restrict his reach. He is now like a vicious dog on a chain. Such a dog cannot harm you if you stay out of his way. For God holds him back. He is the one who holds the chain. But in the end, Satan will be thrown into the pit forever and ever, never to be able to escape. He will be in eternal darkness for eternity. And not only him, but also all those who belong to him. And that includes all those people who persist and not in not believing God's promises who live as if God does not exist. That's the warning Jude gives to his readers and to you and to me. And then Jude gives one more example. He comes with the old story about Sodom and Gomorrah. We come to the last point. It appears that the false teachers in their midst had no difficulty with sexual immorality. And some people were taken in by the argument that what you do with the body does not matter. As long as you take care of your soul, all will be well. And God is also a God of forgiveness, isn't he? So why worry? Live life to the fullest. And for that reason, Jude adds the third warning. For he knows that the Lord is very angry with such, when such immorality is tolerated. And that he will remove his Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is to dwell in the church of God. And the bodies of the believers are temples of the Holy Spirit as well, for they are the church. In Sodom and Gomorrah, the Holy Spirit had all been but banished because of the immoral lifestyles of the people. There was no limit to their immorality. They gave themselves completely over to the works of the devil. They lived lives without restraint. Their only aim was to seek pleasure for themselves. It says that they indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire. Literally, it says that they indulged in other flesh or different flesh. What does that mean? Well, in the first place, it means that they were guilty of unnatural sex with each other. It's a clear reference to homosexuality. Because of their quest for sexual pleasure, they no longer were satisfied with normal sexual relations between a husband and his wife. But they sought gratification in different ways. And their minds were constantly busy with immoral thoughts. And therefore it is likely that other flesh also refers to bestiality. Leviticus 18 verse 22 and following shows that both are condemned by God. It is always the case that sexual immorality goes hand in hand with all kinds of other sins. Paul also makes that clear in Romans 1. It leads to idol worship. It leads to licentious living, he says. It leads to God's judgment. It leads to destruction. And now the Lord God gave us Sodom and Gomorrah to serve as an example, it says in our text. Actually, it says that he exposed this openly to public view. That's how the Greek reads. In other words, he put it on public display. Do you know how he did that, for example? Well, most scholars today agree that those cities are most likely buried under the Dead Sea. That salty sea serves as a constant reminder of God's wrath against such horrible immorality. And furthermore, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is repeatedly mentioned in the pages of the scriptures. If only the generation of today would heed God's warning. For today, the same kind of immorality can be found as was found then. Society, I don't have to tell you, is becoming more and more permissive. Now, homosexuality is no longer a sin. Instead, it is a lifestyle to be admired. The sin today is to be against homosexuality. There is no longer any shame. And even though God judges this sin already in this life through the spreading of diseases. Man does not heed the warnings. This society more and more wallows in its own filth. It delights in it. It promotes it. And we live in the midst of such a world. We live in it just like Lot did. In 2 Peter 2 verse 7 Lot is called the righteous man. Yet in spite of his righteousness Lot barely escaped. According to Genesis 19 verse 16, Lot and his wife and children had to be seized by the hand. Lot had a hard time leaving all his possessions behind. His materialism almost cost him his salvation. Lot's wife even had greater difficulty. She looked back and she was turned into a pillar of salt. Politicians today say that it is all about freedom. It is about the freedom to live whatever life you want And anybody that disagrees with that stands condemned. If they were to hear this sermon on the internet today, they would also condemn me. You can be sure of that. They don't even see the irony of that. Liberalism is extremely intolerant. But what they proclaim is not freedom. It is clear that this world is still in the grip of Satan. For anybody who follows the desires of the flesh is in slavery. But make no mistake about it. It is not just the sin of homosexuality that God condemns. He condemns all sin. You and I are not any better than the rest of the world. Oh sure, we may not openly practice these things, but sexually, sexual immorality also exists amongst us. As does idolatry and envy And hatred. We are all sinners. And so we better be humble. But, brothers and sisters, the wonderful gospel we may hear this morning that you and I, we have been liberated. The Lord God has set you and me free through the Lord Jesus Christ. And He also preserves us. You don't have to be afraid. As I said, For as I said, we too fall into various kinds of sins. But the difference between the world and us is that you and I don't want to live in our sins. You and I want to live close to God. Don't we? We don't want to be in the grip of Satan, do we? And as long as we want to do that, And as long as we time and again humble ourselves before God and ask Him to forgive us our sins as we struggle with our sins, then God will not condemn us. He will restore us. And He will not condemn us on the day of judgment either. For those who believe, for you and for me, it will be a day of triumph, a day of joy, and not a day of terror. It will be a wonderful day, brothers and sisters, because then Satan and all his fallen angels and all those who have followed them will be exposed and condemned and removed from this earth forever. All sin and all the effects of sin will be done away with. And that, brothers and sisters, is what we are looking forward together as congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in this struggle against sin, brothers and sisters, In this struggle to trust the Lord in all things, we need each other to help us stay the course. And so be thankful for your leaders, for your office bearers, and for the ministers who warn you, who come to you in love. Be thankful for your brothers and sisters in the Lord. And that is why it is so wonderful that we may belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, all expecting our salvation through him alone. God's reminders are given to you and to me as warnings. Why? Because he loves us. That's why he sent his son. Because he hates sin. And he took sin upon himself. And he loves us. And he wants us to be close to him into eternity. Amen.